Well, I'm delighted to say joining us on the Godcast today is Isabel Oakshot. Now, Isabel is a writer, a broadcaster and a public speaker. Isabel is a regular guest on BBC One's Question Time, Radio 4's Any Questions and Sky News. Uh, Isabel is a prominent Brexit supporter. She's got a particular interest and expertise in the campaign to leave the European Union. Isabel was political edit editor of the Sunday Times, and she left to write an un unauthorised biography of Prime Minister David Cameron with uh, the Conservative peer, Lord Ashcroft. And of course, the book, you will know, attracted global publicity. She and Lord Ashcroft went on to write a book on the state of the armed forces called White Flag, and uh, that was published in 2018 and is now working on an investigation into the state of the NHS. Isabel Oakshot, hello and welcome to the Godcast. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thank you. Um, I should just say about the book on the state of the NHS that because of the pandemic, uh, that project's actually been put on hold. You can imagine that trying to write a book on the state of the NHS, which was actually uh, about to go off to the publishers just as the pandemic began, uh, felt a very kind of dangerous territory to be in. So we put that one on ice and I'm now working on various other exciting projects, but thank okay. you for having me. Okay, I, feel like I'm in, I feel like I'm in a kind of little confession box here. <laughs> and I'm wondering what I'm gonna be hit with. <laughs> Trust me, there's no confession, Isabella, unless of course <laughs> you <laughs> would like to, but um, I've got a standard question to begin with, Isabel, um, and that's relating to Burnley. And the question is, have you ever been here? Have you been to Burnley at all? Now you're asking. Mm. So, um, during the Brexit campaign, I went to an awful lot of places beginning with B. Now, <laughs> don't even test me about which all these places were. I went through a phase of going to a lot of Brexit party rallies, and they always seem to be in places beginning with B. And, and the other thing is that you mentioned about Question Time, which I used to do a lot, and they often um, held that show places very far from London, which was kind of part of the fun of it because it meant you you got to see a different part of the world. And, you know, people are always complaining that us uh, political commentators and uh, politicians too never get out of the bubble. Um, but right now I can't think of any lasting memories of Burnley. So maybe you were a bee that wasn't on the list. Probably. You would definitely have remembered if you'd been to Burnley, Isabella. I'm sure I would have. Yeah. <laughs> so where are we talking to you from? Where's home today? So I'm in the Cotswolds, um, so West Oxfordshire, and I must say that it's a really lovely place to be, uh, even during lockdown. You know, I think those of us that live in nice parts of the countryside um, have really felt very lucky over this um, awful experience. Uh, at least we're able to get out and just sort of try to forget some of the uh, endless negativity that the pandemic has brought to people's lives. Yeah, and I understand, um... The family roots are a bit north of the Cotswold, Scotland, is that right? Well, that's where I grew up um, and uh, I used to have to go to church every week. So if you're going to test me on church services and, and things like that, then I might be able to do OK on that. I was brought up in a um, really with very religious parents, actually, and uh, they were extremely strict about Sunday church going. Um, and it was quite... Um, in a way, if I'm honest, it was quite an ordeal. You know, the church that we went to was a big Episcopalian church. Um, and really, our family of five of us, my mum, my dad and my 
two sisters and I, we, we, we were quite often about 50% of the congregation. Um, so it could be quite a gloomy experience and, uh, you know, the same sort of ritual every week. Subsequent to that, as an adult, um, I've been lucky enough to uh, be attached to local churches where uh, the ministers have been very forward thinking and lively. And I've met some truly wonderful um, ministers over the years, but I'm, I'm a bit bad at going to church regularly these days. Did you have a, did you have a role uh, as a child in the church or in the choir or anything like that? <laughs> there would have been a choir of about two people, as I'm telling you, there was no one in that church. Right. Um, but I did get, actually, my parents did encourage me to be a, um, what they called a server. I don't know what, whether it's called that in other churches. That. So, yeah, for a brief period, I did have a kind of white cloak thing and I had to go up and down. I think mum and dad loved it. I didn't, though. So where did that kind of, um, your parents being very religious, was that, was that a generational thing? And, and did that remain uh, continuous as you grew up as well? Yeah, so um, my mum is still a, um, a lay reader. Um, she's able to take this, take large parts of the service at the church, or at least she was before um, so much shut down during the, uh, due to the pandemic. She's very much part of the church community here in the Cotswolds. Uh, my dad's no longer with us, but he remains very religious uh, right up until the end of his life. So it was just very much part of, of who they were, really. And um, we used to have endless religious discussions around the um, family dinner table. Well, really, it wasn't us kids discussing it. It was mum and dad. And they'd have these quite high level theological debates and, and we kids would sort of sit there slightly rolling our eyes. Mm. Uh, but it was something that was you know, very important to them. And they had um, extremely detailed knowledge of the Bible. Certainly my dad, you know, he would constantly wheel out names and, you know, things that are in the Bible that I'd never heard of. Quite impressive, really. I think he, he would sometimes read the Bible almost for, well, for pleasure and leisure, um, which is, is, is unusual these days, I guess. Yeah. And you say now, you, you know, you don't go to church and a lot, but uh, Christmases and festivals are you still still try and get there if you can yes absolutely and we live right next to the church so I mean one of the things I've really missed during this pandemic is a wonderful bell ringing here um, in this uh, village that I live in in the Cotswolds we have a wonderful local church and uh, it's a very thriving uh, church community and the bell ringing is fabulous on a Sunday morning um, on a Wednesday evening I've had occasions to and be slightly grumpy about it because it's extremely loud and it goes on the practice goes on for about an hour um, and when my kids were younger in fact still I mean there's no way you can get children to go to sleep with that racket going on but I must say I miss it it's been really sad not to hear the bells yeah um Isabel can you tell us a little bit you attended Gordonstone didn't you the the private school in yeah up in Scotland which I'm sure most people will know Prince Charles attended um was that a happy experience for you? Did you enjoy school life? Um, I loved it. I had um, I had been for six years at a very academic, well, longer than that, actually. I'd been at a very academic school but for about eight years in Edinburgh, girls' school. Uh, it really was a, something of an exam factory. Um, and I had a very long commute from our freezing farmhouse uh, out in the countryside to this uh, exam factory of a school in Edinburgh. Um, and uh, then I went to had sixth form at Gordonston and it really was a wonderful, really, really happy time. 
uh, I got to, to do all sorts of interesting and new things and mountaineering and seamanship and even better, it was co-educational. So having been in this sort of very confined environment with a bunch of girls, it was quite fun, as you can imagine, mm. uh, to finally be in a co-ed environment and having lots of adventures and going camping and sailing. And uh, it really was a great school. Right. And when when, when can you recall uh, that kind of journalistic instinct in you started kind of coming out? Did did you recognise that as a as, as a teenager or, or a bit later? Even younger, funnily enough, even younger. I actually remember being asked at the age of about probably about 11 or 12, what do you want to, you know, what do you think you'll be doing in 10 years time? Um, and I thought that I would be um, a newsreader at that age. And I had quite a clear vision of it. I actually imagined that I'd be wearing this kind of, um, by the way, this was the 80s, so I wasn't really thinking what's fashion going to be like in 10 years time. So I kind of pictured myself in like this um, blue kind of boxy suit and I would be on TV reading the news. Um, and actually, 10 years after the date of being asked that, I was uh, nowhere near being on TV reading the news, but I was working on a local paper and I had been writing diaries um, not not even just teenage diaries but from the age of 10 I used to write a diary every single day I loved writing so mm. it was always what I I was going to do I have to say I was not incredibly um dedicated when it came to getting all the work experience and stuff that that young people do now I think it was a bit easier then you weren't expected to pack your CV with a bunch of internships by the time you were the age of 18. Yeah. Uh, but I did do student newspaper um, and managed to get a job on a, a local paper in the countryside uh, after leaving university. Okay, can, can you remember, Isabel, your first piece that you actually paid for? Can you remember that at all? Well, I can remember my first front page story um, and it's, it's how I got my first job actually, because I did a week of work experience. Uh, I had two weeks lined up of work experience after leaving university and I'd left university with no money and no job and frankly, no real plan. And it was pretty bad. Um, and I ended up going back to my university town of Bristol um, and I was working in a call centre. Mum and dad didn't give me any money at all. So I was really on my own um, and I was living in a bedsit it was pretty grim and I was literally putting 50 peas in the meter. It was that kind of level of accommodation. Mm -hmm. And that really did concentrate my mind, I have to say. Um, no choice but to get a job because the call centre was really awful. So I arranged two weeks of work experience, one at the Scotsman, which is a national newspaper in Scotland, and the second at the local paper up there. Uh, which was a weekly and I was really expecting the local paper would be really rubbish compared to the national paper and that would be much more exciting and in reality the local paper was really fun um, because they were able to use me you know it was only a small team and so anyone that came in was a potential asset mm. and I got a I got a story about a, a wild boar that was on the loose in uh, in our area and it was I... causing all sorts of problems um, and so the front page story, I mean, this is a local paper, bear in mind, uh, was all about this, this wild boar, which had been called Pumba, and how um, poachers were trying to catch it. And on the back of that story, the editor said to me, 
you know, the first job that comes up here, it's yours. And a couple of months later, the job came up and she was as good as her word. Thank the Lord for the wild, the wild boar, eh? <laughs> yes, yeah, it wasn't exactly scoop of the century, really, was it? But, you know, it was kind of a charming story. Yeah. So wait, which university did you go to, Isabel? Um, so I went to Bristol. So you went from north to south, did you? Was that a happy time as well? Um, it was fine. I think I was a bit square, actually. I mean, I, I think if I had my time at university again, I'd be pretty wild. Um, but I just, I just worked a bit too hard. I remember thinking, you know, I should just work nine to five. You know, then I can, then I can like do more fun things in the evening. I was ridiculously disciplined. You know, I worked really, really hard. I think I felt I had something to prove. Um, and I got a first and I did have a good time, but I wouldn't have said it was by any means like the happiest time of my life. Mm. And I'd love to do it all again and be totally, um, you know, a lot more carefree. I think I, I just probably just went for it a bit too much academically. Yeah. So uh, just if we just return to the matter of faith then, so that, those experiences, um, are you happy to say where your faith is now? Are you, would you say you're a person of faith or...? Um, I would say, um, just have to check my mum's not going to watch this, um, I would say that I, uh, it's a really difficult one, I, I do want to believe in, in God and a higher being and I think that the culture of Christianity is a really good one and everything that is taught on um, the way Christians should approach their life is very, um, is, the, is, a, is the right kind of pattern to follow. Um, I struggle with aspects of it, um, but I, uh, I'm, I suppose I'm sort of ag agnostic, um, mm -hmm. but probably agnostic plus leaning towards wanting to believe, which is yeah. not the same as believing. Okay, that's very honest. Thank you, Isabel. So if we can just look at, um, you are obviously into politics and um, there's quite a lot of politics floating around the church at the moment. I was just wondering if I could uh, get your views on a couple of things. So um, for example, um, the church has received quite a lot of criticism in recent months about the way uh, it's handled uh, closures um, re re relating to um, COVID-19. What, what's your take on that, Isabel, how, in how the church have dealt with that matter? I've been really disappointed, actually. I think there's there's been real weakness of leadership from the church on this, the Church of England, um, I would say in particular, but that's only because I'm more familiar with the structure there and it is the established church here. Um, I think I would have liked to seen, have seen a much bolder and more robust response uh, on so many levels. First of all, um, it seems to me that the church leadership has been pretty supine uh, on some of the regulations that have been enforced, um, you know, blithely accepting um, no services at Easter, for example. I mean, this was a really important time near the beginning, very beginning of the pandemic. I would have liked to see church um, ministers out in the graveyards holding outdoor services, you know, really making a point of this is not going to stop us having collective acts of worship, which are nonetheless safe and socially distanced, but we will still come together. And they did none of that. I think that there's been a, a woeful lack of leadership on, for example, um, the attendance of funerals and some of the awful, awful examples of overzealous application uh, of rules in 
funeral ceremonies, you, you may or may not have seen uh, those absolutely sickening pictures of um, officials in a, in a crematorium service telling people that they shouldn't be allowed to put their arms around each other. I mean, this is absolutely obscene. And we've heard nothing, nothing at all from any of the archbishops on why uh, this is or isn't acceptable. Where is the church leadership over this pandemic? I feel um, that if I was a person of deep faith, I would feel quite abandoned by the church leadership during this period. Um, and yes, individual ministers have done wonderful things. You're a great example of it yourself. You know, you're trying to bring uh, what you do into new domains. And uh, I've no doubt that um, the best of uh, church ministers are finding all sorts of new ways in which to um, carry on uh, preaching the faith and looking after their flock, as it were. But looking slightly as an outsider, I just see nothing. I see I know there's no church bells ringing. Nobody's gathering for services in our churchyard, even during the lovely summer months when we could easily have been doing outdoor things. Um, so this is something that actually makes me pretty angry because although I'm not um, personally one who's really lost out, I know just how important this is to people's lives and particularly the older generation people like my mother, for whom this is absolutely central. Her, yeah. her faith and her, um, the, the church community is so important to so many people. And I don't understand what it is. Is it a weakness, a cowardice, or, uh, or just a confusion or, or a fear on the part of the, of the leadership of the church? And it, it's really disappointing. Yeah, thank you, Isabel. That was quite a rant, sorry about no, that. <laughs> no, but, but I appreciate your honesty and, and it echoes other people, uh, Giles Fraser um, and um, Quentin Letts um, also brought up their deep concerns and it is very difficult. You know, it, the positive is, is we are trying to, many clergy are trying to be creative, but there is that sense that you're kind of doing half a job in, in a funeral ministry. It's, it, it's very painful because... You know, you, you just want to reach out and, and help people, but you, we're doing it at distance at the moment. Yes. And it does make life quite tricky for us. But thank you. Um, another, <laughs> staying on cheery church matters, Isabel, I want to talk about the the issue of child abuse in the church and um, because I think it needs to be talked about and I think sometimes people um, aren't prepared to talk about it, but both in the... Anglican Church and in the Roman Catholic Church in recent weeks, there's been um, kind of a dereliction of duty on, on the role of some people, and there's been kind of cover-ups, and um, these again make it very difficult for clergy working today to try and uh, do good work because it kind of drags us back. How, how, do, you, how do you see that with the way that, that the cover-up in the church has gone? Yeah, I mean, it's really disappointing. I feel so sorry for people now trying to run quite innocently Sunday schools and choirs and, and all the rest of it. And the impression that has been created is that this type of child abuse was endemic, um, you know, to the point that it was almost in every institution of the church. And, mm -hmm. you know, in some way, the majority of of clergy, uh, you know, should be subject to suspicion. And that must be utterly awful um, for the vast majority who would have had no uh, involvement in any such devilish, uh, devilish practices. Um, and I just think it's incredibly sad. It's awful. It's tarnished the, the good name of the church. It's created a culture of suspicion. Um, and it's just, it's just 
grim really isn't it and I'm sure it could have been handled better you know I find these stories such a miserable turn off that I I just don't really engage with them anymore there's so many of them and my heart just sinks and I just think I've heard it all before I don't really want to hear it again I really hope that that people that have been a victim of it um find some kind of peace but it must be very very difficult hmm. yeah it is it is very difficult it's very sad because it's still happening you know um revelations like you say they seem unending and you wonder where it will all end um on on one other uh, hot potato in the church of course at the moment is the topic of same-sex relationships and um particularly the matter of whether gay people should be allowed to be married in church in the eyes of god and um I'm on a bit of a journey with this one myself, but I was wondering what your take on that is, Isabel. I mean, do you, do you think God moves with the times or is God a kind of static being? Does, does God get modern? That's the question, because if God gets modern, uh, I'm not going to let you off the hook here because you haven't answered. Well, I'm, I'm interviewing you, but, I, I, but, I'm, I but I'm, I'm happy to say that I think God's on the move. You know, I think <laughs> I think that's the gift of the Holy of the Holy Spirit. So, so look, if God can be on the move, then the rest of us can be, can't we? Um, I think I've been wrong about this in the past. I think um, I, I'm I'm absolutely fine about gay marriage um, in principle. I didn't think that uh, at the time, for the sake of openness and honesty, I didn't think it was the right thing when David Cameron introduced the gay marriage legislation way back when. Um, it felt like it was being imposed on people. Um, and I think he was probably right actually in retrospect. Um, but I'm still a little bit uncomfortable about the idea of those ceremonies taking place in church. Um, but I'm not gonna get all strident about that. Um, I might be wrong. It's not really a wrong or right though, is it? It's, it's about your sense of of, of what um, Christianity teaches us. And mm. I don't think I, I would judge people for not being comfortable with it, um, but that's a bit of a cop-out because in the end, someone has to make a decision. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I probably on balance would say it's not necessary for those ceremonies to take place in yeah. church. I think it's interesting because when I was, I was ordained uh, five years ago, I never thought I would see, I never thought it would be something for me to be concerned about because I never thought it would happen in my lifetime as a, as a priest. But um, it seems water's moving quite quickly and uh, there's, a, there's a, a push towards that and, uh, and some, some people in the church will rejoice at that and others won't. But um, there we are, that's, uh, that's as, as in most things, isn't it? Um, in terms of other political stuff, Isabel, you... you um, if you said, if I said to you this, that this time last year, Boris would cruise to victory in the election and Brexit, but Brexit would hardly get a mention throughout the spring, summer and autumn. Would you have believed me? What would you have said? Um, I think I could have predicted that Brexit would kind of um, fall back as, a, as the number one issue of national importance, even if, even if it not been for the pandemic. I mean, we saw that happening quite quickly. And no wonder, I mean, even I, you know, made a very successful kind of um, living out of it, as it were. Um, I, even I got kind of fatigued by it. I mean, the battle was just awful. It was incredibly divisive. Um, it was really toxic. 
um, you know, people became very unpleasant towards each other. I think one of the worst aspects of these types of political debate is um, the implication on both sides that the other side has somehow got the wrong motives. Uh, in reality, the majority of the time, people involved in politics have the right motives. They genuinely, they might be misguided, or I might be misguided, but I'm genuinely not doing it to improve my own position. Um, and there was an awful lot of that on both sides of the divide, I think, people uh, accusing the other side of only arguing for something out of some kind of self-interest. That's rarely the case. Very few people go into politics or indeed political commentary uh, because they think they can enrich themselves as a result. You know, most of us think that in some way or like to think that we are um, trying to change things for the better. Uh, and the debate over Brexit became incredibly disrespectful. That's putting it politely. Uh, you know, I had some really awful experiences um, putting my side of the argument on, on the BBC, for example, and being sneered at and ridiculed and, um, you know, jeered and mocked. And, you know, it was pretty brutal stuff. Yeah. So I think those of us that stuck, their, stuck our necks out on this, um, quite glad uh, to have the relief of being... We just lost you there for a moment, Isabel. But but it, um, Brexit hasn't—it's uh, kind of not hit the headlines because of COVID and and such like. But um, it's not gone away. How do you see that playing out uh, in the coming months, Isabel? Well, I think there will be a deal. Um, you know, clearly the government wants a deal for obvious reasons, and I think that the um, Brexit kind of purists will say the deal is a sellout. Um, it was ever thus. Um, of course, there remains a, a, a minor possibility that there will be no deal. I think that's pretty unlikely. But frankly, even if there was no deal, compared to the absolute national trauma that we have been through and are still going through, um, a few lorries queuing at Calais probably would be somewhat put in perspective. You know, the the upheaval, the, the hell that has been unleashed by this pandemic and, and more so the government's response to this pandemic the number of jobs lost, the number of lives ruined, uh, you know, really puts the worst case scenario um, uh, depictions of what might happen under a no deal Brexit into the shade. Mm. Yeah, thank you, Isabel. Um, just I want to ask you a question about ethics in politics, if I can, um, because I know that there are uh, many Christians in, in Westminster, Theresa May, Tim Farron, Ian Blackford, Marsha de, C de Cordova, but there seems to be this unwritten rule that faith and politics are two separate entities. And I think about Tim Farron, who, who famously gave up the leadership of his political party because of, because of his Christian ethics. Um, why do you think that's the case? I think it's very sad, actually, and politicians need to push back against that. Uh, it's, it's important to them, it's part of who they are. Um, it's very different in America, of course, where it's almost compulsory to be a, a person of faith and, and to shout about it, actually. Um, and I don't know which is healthier. You know, on the one hand, perhaps in America, it's a bit over the top. Um, and on the other hand, here, it's, it's a little creepily absent. 
Mm. Um, and, you know, you mentioned a few names. The reality is that there'll be many, many multiples of, the, of that number. Um, and I thought it was quite tragic in a way, really, when Tim Farron, uh, do you know what? I can't actually remember the precise circumstances of him resigning, but it was to do with, I think it was to do with gay marriage or civil partnerships or adoption or, or one of those. Um, and it seemed to me a shame that, that people couldn't take the merits of, of what he proposes as a politician on every other front uh, against this, you know, other aspect of his, what is a sort of core part of him. Um, mm. And how do we change that? I think politicians who are of faith need to be out and proud about that instead of sort of trying to hide it as if it's something to be ashamed of. Yeah. Of course, what you just mentioned there in America, you had two candidates who were very much on the kind of uh, waving the, the God ticket, weren't they? But in very different ways, weren't they? I mean, Trump didn't actually do a huge amount of that. And I think um, because he probably, I don't know this, but I don't think he is a particularly kind of God-fearing, church-attending, classic kind of uh, American Christian. I mean, again, he, he didn't talk a lot about um, pro-life, you know, very tricky territory in America. And actually this presidential debate was not colored by a lot of pro-life versus pro-so-called so pro-choice mm. uh, on abortion. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a whole different world over there, isn't it? And some aspects of it you wouldn't want to import here. Um, but you know, more often than not, we just don't know what our um, politicians think of, of these issues. Um, I don't know much about what, what, for example, Boris's religious views are. No. Um, probably not very strong, but you know, if, if they are, he hides them well. <laughs> okay. And um, we've not got an awful lot of time left, Isabel, but it would remiss of me if I didn't mention the, de the, the David Cameron book and, and, and that it came with much notoriety. Um, you know, it was, I don't like using that word, but it was referred to as Piggate, wasn't it? And uh, and I wonder how you reflect on that. Um, I'm sure it was fantastic for book sales, but do, do you feel it overshadowed the rest of the book? Uh, you know, how, how, yeah, how does it sit with you now? Yeah, of course it did. I mean, um, and it's funny that you should bring it up. I mean, it was ages ago. Um, you know, this was 2015, I think. And I've done some really massive stories since then. You know, think of one, for example, Kim Darrick, um, you know, emails that I published last year with the Mail on Sunday, um, uh, along with another reporter, Stephen Edgington, led to the resignation of the UK's ambassador to the, to the US. These are massive stories, I've done several others. Um, for some reason, can't imagine what, uh, Piggate somehow captured the public imagination. Um, do you know what, I just think I was a bit naive about it at the time. I didn't really think that it would be much more than a story on the front of you know the National Enquirer or Private Eye or something like that um, but you know this is a sort of really fairly early days in um, in things going viral on Twitter um, and I can say uh, that year that 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 Piggate was the second uh, most high, highest tweeted thing after Zayn Malik leaving One Direction so <laughs> that'll probably be on my gravestone <laughs> oh well um, I think I cheered up the nation with that with that story. You did. People loved yeah. it. They might yeah. have wanted to slag it off, but the truth was they just absolutely loved it. Well, it, it'll go down in history, that's for sure. Um, I just want to just, um, I know I was going to ask you about uh, the NHS, but uh, 
the NHS has done a pretty good job generally, hasn't it, with COVID? I mean, I know it gets uh, gets a kick in from places, but... Um... I don't think it gets enough of a kicking in many ways. Um, I think, you know, look, how long have you got? This is one of my pet subjects. I really d dislike the whole protect the NHS thing. Uh, the NHS is there to protect us. I think there's a real danger uh, in this country. The NHS has gone from being a national religion to an actual cult, uh, and that really... Um, masks an awful lot of things that could be improved about the NHS. I, I don't for a minute um, want to uh, in any way cast aspersions on the, the great work of our doctors and nurses and other clinicians and all the support staff, but that is very different from the structure and the institution of the NHS, which is in many ways very flawed, uh, which doesn't mean to say that, um, you know, a privatised system would be a lot better. I'd probably come on a bit of a journey with that myself. Um, I, do, I wouldn't actually change the fundamentals of the NHS uh, carefree at the point of, of delivery, um, but we absolutely must not as a nation get into this lazy place of just um, clapping for the NHS and saying thank you NHS all the time uh, and allowing that to cloud um, our vision uh, when it comes to things that the NHS could do better. Yeah. It sounds like you've got a number of chapters to add to the work you've already started there, doesn't it? With the... It's going to end up about the size of the Bible at this rate. And you know how you, you know how no one ever reads the Bible from beginning <laughs> to end. So that is dangerous territory. You need a you need a wild boar story in there or something, Isabel. And definitely no pigs, though. <laughs> no pigs. No, no, no. no. Well, Isabel, just finally, before we go, what, what do you do when you're not uh, writing or working? What do you what do you enjoy doing to chill out and uh, take your mind off things? Well, just behind me, which you can't see, um, keeping very nice and quiet is one very cuddly cocker spaniel dog who is oh. very obediently staying in his basket and not make any growly noises. But I love to go running with him uh, here in the countryside. And of course, I couldn't put him ahead of my three young children. Um, and they certainly keep me completely busy. Sure, There's sure. no such thing as spare time in this household. No, no. Well, I have a pater del terrier that is uh, being cared for by my daughter at the moment because he's quite noisy. So, um, yeah, so probably get on very well with your cocker spaniel. He's quite a friendly little chap. So, well, Isabel, it's been, it's been really lovely chatting to you. And, and uh, I, I really appreciate your honesty, which I, I didn't expect anything else. And um, and I, I look forward to uh, hearing about the book about the NHS when it comes out. And uh, and uh, thank you again so much for coming on the Godcast this week. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on the Godcast. I think it's a great idea, and I hope uh, it goes from strength to strength. Thank you, Isabel. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>